This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this Wednesday at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Nick Barley. I'm the director of this festival. And I want to begin with a, a truth. I love you. <laughs> no, I mean it. I, honestly, I really love you. Not you, but you, Edinburgh Book Festival audiences, because I think this festival is so great because of the way you are and the way you are you have trust in me to stage events and you leave your preconceptions at the door and you come in and you listen to authors and that quality of what you do is what makes this festival so great and i'm proud of you and i love you for that and so thank you But the reason I'm telling you that right now is not simply just to, to be nice to you. It's because today I think that's crucial. It's vital today. Uh, I want to tell you a very brief story before I introduce today's guest, Andrew O'Hagan. And that is, uh, in my former life as a publisher, I worked with an architect, a venerable architect named Cedric Price, and I wanted to publish a book of his work. And he said, yeah, you can publish a book of my work on one condition, that it has a sell-by date on the cover. Now, as a, any publisher will tell you, a book with a sell-by date ain't going to cover its costs. But it, eventually we did publish this book. It said, sell-by date, blah, blah, whatever it was, 2003, after which time the author may have changed his mind. <laughs> now, tell me any other architect who, who will admit to changing his or her mind during their career. It doesn't happen. But this was a radical thing about, this, about Cedric Price. He was willing to, to admit that we can change our minds. And that's why I love Edinburgh's audiences, because we're willing to admit that sometimes there's a time to rethink what we thought we knew, to rethink what we thought we understood. And I think right now, in this time, we need to rethink Scotland. And that's the reason why I invited Andrew O'Hagan to come and deliver this keynote lecture at the Book Festival today. I think this could be a moment in Scotland's history which we'll remember for a long time. We all know Andrew O'Hagan as a fantastic novelist. Be Near Me, Our Fathers, You'll Have Your Favourite Novel, They're Mine. But we also know Andrew O'Hagan as one of the best essayists, not only in Scotland, but also in the whole of the world. His essays, his non-fiction work, is extraordinary and that's why I wanted to invite him to give a lecture today called Scotland Your Scotland to think through what the future of Scotland could be. He will deliver his lecture today. I ask you to listen. I ask you to leave your preconceptions at the door as you always do. There will be no questions at the end but do join him afterwards in the signing tent if you want to talk to him about what he says. But I ask you to sit back and listen to an extraordinary moment for the book festival. And please welcome Andrew O'Hagan. Thank you. The vanity of each generation is to believe we are living through the greatest period in history. Each generation imagines it is germinating a brand new world, that the times are glorious, that their period is the most interesting ever to occur, that earthly progress would turn around now for a thousand years and their names would be written on water. The Romans believed it, and their civilization is now a heap of lovely ruins and a dead language. And yet there are good reasons to trust that the 21st century will indeed be a time of times, a period for the ages, as we proceed towards new formulations of what it means to be human, of what constitutes a society, of what characterizes a culture and what makes a nation. My ancestors came to Glasgow from Ireland with soil on their hands. They soon replaced it with engine grease, but not before they had fought themselves clean with the local culture. And I enjoyed a Scottish childhood in which 400 years of history was inscribed at the level of daily life. In the town in Ayrshire where I grew up, the Catholic Church was adjacent to a blue hut in a field, a hut that lay dormant for most of the week. But on Sunday morning, about two minutes before 10 o'clock mass, the hut would thump into life, a big bass drum at its core. 
as the local orange band embarked on its weekly rehearsals. <laughs> you could see the funny side of that, of course, and in time the Blue Hut was replaced by a library which carried books by people from all over the world who feasted on the different kinds of loyalties that go to make a world. My Glasgow grandparents weren't just poor, they were Victorian poor, subject, when I examined the records, to privations and self-defeats that would have made Charles Dickens blush. Yet we had added to the country that took us in by helping build a labour movement at the centre of it, Even in my post-industrial childhood in the 70s and 80s, the old arguments died hard. Yet only at the end of it, and after a few harsh doubts of my own, indeed, did I realize a modern Scotland had been born around us. We were immigrants after all, but now we had inside bathrooms and national health care and jobs. It took a while for some of us to go over the grief of the journey, and we hadn't the literature yet, to soothe or express it. But that came in time, the poetry and the prose, the drama and the art, and the Scotland I'd always known in my head and in my day began to exist in the literature of the country. The title of this lecture is Scotland, Your Scotland, tipping a hat to that famous essay of 1941 by George Orwell called England, Your England. It was a brave essay at the time, characteristically unflinching in naming those parts of the national character that should be named. At the time of writing it, Britain was facing the greatest threat to its existence since the Norman Conquest. Wolf packs of German U-boats surrounded the coast. Bombs whistled overhead. Yet Orwell trusted that the fighting spirit could still endure a few incendiary home truths. The English were a sleepwalking people he said, smutty and snobbish. He said they were hypocritical about their empire, they are insular. But for all that, Orwell observed that the English nation, for all its promotion of class differences and proud stupidities, is is bound together by an invisible chain, he said, even if it was a family with the wrong members in control. I grew up hearing, as many of you did, I'm sure, about the perennial Scotsman, the English and the Irishman, jokes that in our house had a 66 and two-third chance of scoring a direct insult. (laughs) But national stereotypes used to be more fun, or so it felt. And the reason we have always had such resourceful comedians in this country is that we generally find our misfortunes to be more diverting than our triumphs. Quite handy, that, as it goes. Entertained by our own kitsch, remorseless about our own vanities, it's no accident that Scotland fostered the best variety theatre in the world. There were comedians in our house and in the house next door and the one next door to that. And my late father spent his last moments on earth trying out new material. (laughs) You told a lie on Radio 4 the other night, he said. A lie, I said, on Radio 4? I don't think so. You did so, he said. You told them we had no books in our house when you were growing up. That isn't true. There was one. It was green. It was on top of the fridge for ages. (laughs) That was the command of telephone directory, I said. (laughs) That doesn't count. For years in Scotland, my Scotland, I felt that England was all the better for having Scotland attached to it, and vice versa. I'd grown up with a strong sense of solidarity and had a natural leftist belief in the commonality of these islands, of a joint commitment to decency and shared destiny, presenting a united front up and down the land against barbarian elements, which first meant, for my generation, Margaret Thatcher and her notion of no such thing as society. It was in my veins, that belief in land-hopping progress. Such magical thinking always seemed to me to be sown into the literary imagination of Scotland. We are a thinking people, quite literally. We had an intellectual enlightenment based on the notion that strong philosophy could outwit suspicion any day. 
Scottish intellectual life, furthermore, has been distinctive in its dedication not only to speaking its own mind, but of entertaining opposites to its own certainties, dealing in the places where extremes meet and where contradictions come alive. It is no accident that the great progenitor of the myth of human opposites living in one body, Robert Louis Stevenson, grew up in Harriet Row not ten minutes from here. No coincidence that the thinking mind in Scotland is a brain not addled with conventional wisdom, but speaking truth to power, as Robert Burns did, deathlessly so. And where power changes, so will the minds criticising it. I grew up loving all that, and feel it is germane to our situation now. More than any parliament or studio, a literary festival, the best of them, this one, is therefore not only the ample but the perfect place for a rumination about the nation. Once upon a time, reading Adomnan's Life of St. Columba, I imagined the seas around us could come alive and speak truths about an existence as old as the rocks. There's a moment in that book when St. Columba raises his staff and summons the snakes out of the sea and they rise, these talking beasts, live from the depths of Iona Sound, to tell him who he is and who we are. In every corner of Scotland and in the seas that mark us, it is magic realism of that sort that is the order of the day. Not old certainties, not opinion polls, not fears and the fear of further fears, not isolationism, not trolls, not what you used to say or what your mammy said that time, not reporting Scotland or Newsnight, not Donald Trump or the chief whip or that guy who used to play the pipes outside the playhouse, not previous convictions or pension funds or old school ties or something I wrote before. Newness in thinking is like loyalty and love. It doesn't just exist because it was there before. You have to create it fresh every day. Scotland used to feel sorry for itself and was once addicted to historical injury, but that notion is now as old as the people who said it, and I should know because I'm one. Every nation with a rich past has sectarianisms to deal with, but our job is to engage them, not simply by denouncing them, but by supplanting them with bigger thoughts and more exacting passions. That is where we are today, where we are in these gardens of the imagination, digging for fresh truth amid too many old prejudices going nowhere. Rather than pretend, as various politicians do, that they have all the answers, why not start in this place by admitting we are boldly searching? Our perplexity is our situation. Our perplexity is our opportunity. How do I strengthen the better angels of our nature, Barack Obama recently said, and how do we tamp down our tribal impulses? A beginning, I would suggest, might lie in our simply admitting we are in a situation that is new to our political certainties, our party loyalties, our tribal impulses indeed, and our sense of what was previously admissible. That's what writers are for, to replenish the imagination and to steer nowadays by magic realism through the portals of virtual reality into an open space of fresh possibility that we will soon see constitutes what we mean by nation. In a time of fake news, the journey has been very real and relates not to some fictional realm or mad conjuring of the internet, but to a real place a terra firma, one of the most beautiful on earth, this very place, Scotland, where some of the most original thinking about humanness has taken place and will take place again. The statues you see down there were not put there by Walt Disney. They were erected by the will of the people and are of David Hume and Walter Scott, James Boswell and Robert Ferguson, geniuses for whom... Scotland was a stately, multifarious mind, a place where epochs could be enlivened, histories recorded and constitutions pre-written. 
When the Scottish referendum was going on, I found I was asked to speak about it every single day. In the morning, the Today programme, in the afternoon, the New Yorker or CNN. But I didn't answer, and I didn't say a word. I knew they wanted me to reaffirm or to spin upon things I'd said 20 years ago, or passages I'd written in novels, or to contradict the captivating talk of some nationalist or other. But for my own part, I wanted to do something that I'd been taught to do in a Scottish primary school 40 years ago. Watch, listen, and learn. Quietly, I went to the rallies. I attended the conventions. I heard all the speeches and stood in the shadow of the flags that fanned the people cold. A writer, I learned, has a responsibility to the political life as well as a superiority over it. Politicians believe in power. Writers believe in dreams. The thing was to avoid the microphone, keep it shut, let reality do its thing. I have never seen myself as a spokesman, wrote the American novelist and essayist James Baldwin. I am a witness. Yet I noticed something beginning to happen that didn't happen when I was a young writer. I began not so much to build defenses around my own arguments as to awaken to their weaknesses. It's often a failure of intellectual curiosity that causes us from learning nothing from our own experience. We merely defend what we have said before, make a god of what we are known to believe, regardless of changes in the circumstances before us, because it makes us feel better and feel that we were right all along. But what happens if you try to understand the look in the eyes of your opponents? What happens then? What if the no voters in the country allowed themselves the luxury of imagining without prejudice just exactly what they think they would be losing? Me first. A writer's job, after all, is not to defend what she believes in, but to animate what she can barely imagine. Many people in 2014 felt that the argument had not yet been made, and perhaps it hadn't. It certainly hadn't in some respects. But it began to seem to me that the ground was shifting nonetheless, regardless of opinion, regardless of my opinion, and that a reconstituted Scotland was already in process. Despite the seeming defeat and the constant punditry and the comic debility of Westminster power, what if we were already in the early days of a better nation, with the idea carefully minted and the coin merely to follow? I was at the Count in Glasgow the night of the referendum. As I walked among the tables, hour after hour, I realised something strange, especially strange to someone like me who'd always believed these islands were better united. It hardly matters whether or not I wanted the nationalists to win. It was more that I felt, that it all felt, as if they already had. They would lose that night, as you know. But as I drove back to Ayrshire at five o'clock in the morning, passing down to the coast and a view of Arran in the early light, it seemed a different country. The major parties won the referendum, but lost the future. And it was their fault and their myopia. Labour had dealt in fraudulent politics, and David Cameron, in playing the English card in the morning of the result, may have committed the most stupid and divisive political act in these lands since Margaret Thatcher introduced the poll tax. As I drove away from the count in Glasgow in the middle of the night, I felt the union wasn't saved. It was, in fact, over. And Michael Gove, appearing on Jim Nochte's programme, playing on the car stereo, convinced me that the main British parties had, for the time being, bankrupted themselves over Scotland. The fight over Brexit would only deepen the chasm. In fact, Brexit has transformed that chasm into a black hole of impertinence and impossibility. Now that the picture is clearing, we are left with an image of a belated little England posing an existential threat to a Scotland that has seen itself for years as European. I have never believed, for myself, that writers should have anything to do with governments and should never hitch their intellectual freedom to the shifting agendas of political parties or the careers of those looking for votes. I believed Alexander Solzhenitsyn many years ago 
when he said that governments should be nervous of writers because each writer is a government in themselves. The egotism of writers and that of politicians could scarcely be more different, really. What politicians want is power, and what writers want, if they're any good, is the truth beyond the facts and to increase our capacity for wonder. Like the poet Norman McCaig, the first independence a writer must go for, and constantly, is the one he or she embodies in themselves. And I have to say, I despair of the political trolls, those who are brutally warped by their own certainties and can only think ideologically or not at all. We all grew up in a sectarian society and perhaps they still don't know what it means to value their own toleration and don't know how to honour the change that they feel is so necessary. Yet you can forgive a certain amount of dander being up. After Brexit, it seemed overwhelming to many, and not only in Scotland, that Theresa May's high-handedness and lack of political courage has already compromised Britain's trading position within Europe. Yet Scotland's vote against that outcome was simply too clear for the schism to be papered over in the old way. Theresa May, by blankly ignoring this, and by seeking again to appease the right wing of her party, a group yet alien to Scotland, supplied an insult to Scotland's intelligence that it doesn't take much intelligence to see. I didn't stay home with my questions. I took them to the Supreme Court. I was the only novelist there during the week of that appeal, and it was still manna from the gods, I can tell you, listening to the government's lawyers argue that a constitutional alteration the size of Brexit did not require an act of parliament. I won't enter into May's cavalier, and I mean cavalier with a capital C, attitude to the balance of power in the constitutional arrangements of these islands, but it was too little commented on at the time how events in the Supreme Court revealed a blundering attitude towards Scotland's integrity as a political body. For those of us who'd always supported the idea of a united kingdom, it was a shattering moment, shattering to see how willing Theresa May was to ride roughshod over Scotland's discreet authority enshrined in the Scotland Act of 1998 and located in the Sewell Convention so that she could hold on to power and please the Brexiteers whom she had formerly opposed. In a major respect, the Yes campaign had been right all along. It wasn't about nationalism quite. It was about fairness and self-definition, about sovereignty in a much finer sense. And now it was also about the march of history. It took the full unfolding of the case to see with total clarity that the union was corrupted. It was the end of another old song. And it was hard now to resist the fact that Britain was being smashed by those who claimed to defend it, claimed to adore it, and that Scotland would probably be a better country for all that. I speak for no political movement, but must say that no party will do for this country that is not in touch with the growth of ideas. In the national song, it is proud Edward that is sent homewards to think again. But what if all along it was us who must think again, as our native philosophers taught us to do? Should we not send ourselves homewards, our proud army, to think again about what, what it was we said no to. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act, wrote George Orwell. And what is the truth now? Can we, with a fresh conscience, say that Britain is taking us forward? Can we say that leaving Europe without our consent is set to enhance our children's lives and connect us more constructively to the world of the future? Some would say so, some unionists and some nationalists too, but a heavy majority would not, I believe, and many young people in Scotland now feel they are being sold out by their own grandparents. Strangely, it is the younger ones who are more profoundly in touch with Scotland's intellectual tradition. It is not at base a political argument here, but a philosophical one, a humanitarian one, an ecological one putting the rights of all men and women and all children before the fears of a class of account holders. And it's a task of bravery for us account holders to see that there are much larger things at stake. 
The world is not right. It is not right out there. And the task of our combined generations is to put it right or to leave the possibility open. Letting Scotland take its place at the table of modern nations relies on that bravery, the bravery to think again. In 1926, at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, W.B. Yeats railed against those who objected to the uncomfortable truths embedded in Sean O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars. Yeats told his audience there was a difference between national pride and national vanity. Only an immature nation was vain and did not, he said, believe in itself and wanted other people to think well of it in order that it might gain a little self-confidence. The moment a nation reaches intellectual maturity, it became proud rather than vain, he added. England is not Goliath to our David. It is rather a sister nation in troubled times. But a sister is not the same as a self. History is not the past. It is the present. Scotland must now define itself against the small nation retreatism of not just England, but of any small country that has trouble leaving behind a 19th century model of existence. Our moment has arrived for that. We are where we are. And it may be that the bigger unity, the modern union meshing Scotland with Europe and the world, is now a journey Scotland makes alone. Sitting in the Supreme Court, listening to successive lawyers for the Westminster government commanding Scotland to toe the line, I felt the UK's ruling council suddenly appeared absurd. The moral mandate and the imaginative mandate, more importantly, must lie with Scotland itself when it comes to Scotland. And Westminster must answer to itself for how it dismantled a project that it claimed so much to adore. Britain has mismanaged itself out of existence, and Scotland may not be the beneficiary, but it can certainly be the escapee free to succeed or fail in its own ways. At least we will enjoy the dignity of not endlessly repeating a history that we know in our bones has come to an end. We were addicted to that narrative, the imperial story and then the neoliberal account of how a capitalist society must be, and it built many buildings, deregulated many a city, and boosted many a criminal network whilst keeping the powerful in power and the poor in their place. But when the imagination awakens to something better, what then for the old guard? What then when the mind-forged manacles, as William Blake called them, are broken off, when the illusion of dependence is shattered, when the imagination does its stuff and some sweet new air comes up from the glens singing from the river to the sea, Modern Scotland will be free. The problem, in a sense, with 2014 was that Alex Salmond was too emotional, and so was David Cameron. The thought of a reconstituted Scotland might give rise to emotion, but it should not be an emotional decision. And too much emotion has always unbalanced the case. If Mr. Salmond had thought more about the currency question and less about how to unfurl a saltire flag over the centre court at Wimbledon, we might be standing now in the independent Republic of Scotland. But equally, if David Cameron had thought less about what was won and lost on the playing fields at Eton and denied himself a round of silly buggers over Europe, the death knell of the Union might have been delayed. But Brexit gives the lie to the notion that Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland have sovereign force within the system of power at Westminster. As Edmund says in King Lear, the wheel is come full circle. We are here. A fictional Scotland is one of the world's strongest brands in terms of nationhood, so strong that the country has struggled to live up to it. When Arthur Freed the great producer in charge of musicals at MGM in the 1950s hired Gene Kelly and wanted to make Brigadoon. He came to Scotland to scout for locations. On his return to California, he told the executives at Metro that they should just build a set on the studio lot to shoot the film on. The problem with Scotland, he said, is, you know, it's just not Scottish enough. <laughs> In 
In the last analysis, we have parried skillfully with our own image, have made merry with the fake news about us, when in fact Scotland is a world capital of clear thinking and sustained imagining. That's what we are. Scotland did better than most in the age of reason, also did well in the age of sentiment. It did brilliantly in the age of steam, and will do even better in the age of digital. For my sins, countless as they are, I've spent a great deal of the last six years in the murk of that new technology. I spent the best part of six months in a house in Norfolk with the head of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, a man then under house arrest, and I later followed him into the Ecuadorian embassy in London as he tried with dark brio to evade his memoirs. <laughs> I spent a further period working with the man who may have invented Bitcoin, the digital currency that in time will replace paper money and kill the authority of the collapsing and corrupting banks. These and other ethical miles of the digital age led me to see that the world is no longer round. It's as flat as your computer screen and as endlessly deep. After 2008 and the banking collapse, through to the recent American election, when it became clear that the manipulation of digital forces, including Facebook, decided who would be the most powerful man on earth. It became no longer possible to treat of nations as if they were simply conglomerations of old habits. At the back of my mind was the question, what makes a nation? And at the fore forefront, what makes a person? Those late nights with Assange in the embassy, a place where he has now been practically imprisoned for five years, he seemed then to me like a modern parable, Actually stateless, he has become, as one writer said, a global influence, proving that with simple digital tools, a single person can craft a new kind of power, a distributed transnational power, which functions outside norms of state sovereignty that have been held close for centuries. And this is how an entire global generation begins to see the question of politics in the future. Not as a matter of polling stations and I can't your failure, but a matter of arms linking and marching through the liquid borders of the net. Those of us, including many of you here, who can remember a simpler world before handheld devices, devices, by the way, with more computing power than it took to put a man on the moon, may believe the net is just another of life's spaces, but it is not. It has become the space of all spaces. And it seems inevitable now that nations will be, to some, some extent, subsumed by it. The net provides a social infrastructure for international Scots, and not just for technicians, music lovers, environmentalists and political activists, but for people who want to live in the world in a different way and who do don't want to be kettled in physical space. Scotland can't resist that any more than any other modern nation. It is arriving. The question for us is how to transform our institutions to make a triumph of it. Compared with the new communities of the internet, Britain seems like a minor abstraction. All pomp and no circumstance. Great Britain, the name we once gave to a situation we were in, where we traded our sovereignty for empire before the empire was gone. Increasingly, the experience of life in Scotland is not one of feeling bordered by old constitutional abstractions, of sentimental attachments, of fattening prejudice and deflated pomp, but of being open to a sense of energetic existence beyond the fetters of geography. I went to Afghanistan, and the young Scottish and Irish soldiers there seemed alienated from all national stereotypes, and they spoke as if blimpish Britain had died with, when their parents were young, somewhere on Goose Green. Their accents were clear, and they were proud of each other, but there was for them no hallowed corner of any foreign field that would be forever Britain. The young Scots felt Scottish in an international way, and Scotland itself, these last 15 years, has moved on from the old stasis I used to criticise. In the digital age, it knows itself, and such knowledge is not a confinement. The land 
is so distinctive. The songs are so good. The poetry so vital. The whiskey sublime. The humor like no other. The sense of inquiry so rigorous and flexible. The stones so ageless. The spirit so fierce. That Scotland will in the future be a wellspring of algorithms as strong as memories. In my view, in the internet of things, Scotland is due to become one of the world's strongest digital republics, a place whose institutions are daily enhanced and purified, not only by the life of the country, but by the life of all countries. We could one day be part of a neural network whose strongest boundaries are decency and goodness. There's something to go for. The laws of Scotland will one day be both discreet and universal, right for the people of Leith, augmented by brilliance and right for the people of Calcutta, restored and revised every minute and every second and according to what we know and what we decide. After that, our political institutions may not, may not lie to us because their lies will immediately be obvious and our churches could be colourful and wise, offering a sense of the magical and the sacred beyond the bounds of reason. Scotland, your Scotland, is in the earliest days of a digital renaissance, when its greatest thinkers, David Hume, Adam Ferguson, Adam Smith, Francis Hutcheson, are redeployed to address the questions of rights and responsibilities in the coming age of artificial intelligence, and where new thinkers, as yet unborn, will address what it means to be a Scottish person with Scottish instincts in a world of code and algorithm and digital money in an endlessly open society of nations, Scotland teaching the world perhaps how to author a new Gettysburg Address for Peace, showing the globe with historical examples how to author a vindication of the rights of robots. The daily fluctuations of the news cycle in Scotland keep us to the old tasks of looking at party leaders, polls, the ups and downs of the old order, whilst underneath a new way of being in the world is drawing on Scotland to show the way to a future human environment where the wealth of nations, where a theory of human sentiments, where a new history of civil society becomes beautifully ripe. Already today, Facebook's sinister priorities as an advertising space is being mobilized to influence the outcome of the next election more than all the media outlets in the UK combined. It was certainly so at the last US election, you'll have noticed. We simply couldn't have won without Facebook, says Trump's digital strategist, Theresa Wong. As a result of all this, America, as a concept, now has its nose pressed right up against the foggy glass of its own constitution. And it is no less true here in Scotland. It turns out we have exemplars in this country People not afraid to wave a Mexican flag in Donald Trump's face when confronted with his bullying tactics and lies over the many estate in Aberdeenshire. People not afraid to boycott the odious Daily Mail when it characterizes the opponents of Brexit as saboteurs. People of Scotland with a mind of their own and a whole deep history of mindfulness when it comes to opposing the banning of Muslims or the condoning of white supremacists who wish to fence off the world as if the 20th century had never happened. Scottish people and the best of their leaders show they are a century beyond all that, I hope. A century beyond the isolationism that Trump and Theresa May would venture to make a credo of patriotism. Here and there, home and away, we have all changed with the growth of Scotland. And do not believe that our identity can only grow strong by means of expulsion and intolerance. That is not who we are today. Scotland has problems galore, as any nation does, but I'd like to think our problems are honest ones, with no passion spent on hating others in the attempt to raise ourselves. Politics may be reduced to a science, posited David Hume, and it is by science, computer science, that a new form of politics is being established. The question for us will be how to install a spirit of Scotland into these progressions, as it did indeed 
in the original Declaration of Independence in 1776, where Thomas Jefferson drew words and heart from the Scottish Enlightenment. And to deploy Scotland's influence too as a wellspring of philosophical common sense in opposing the regressive, brutal and vicious elements of digital life. We are heading towards a neural network, towards a strong chain of digital republics surrounded in our lives by superintelligent machines that will in time demand rights as well as responsibilities. And it is simply anachronistic to fight to keep things the way they were. Modern statehood is as much in flux as natural selfhood. What does it mean to belong to a nation when you're a 16-year-old kid in Erskine, addicted to Facebook, producing and starring in your life on Instagram, playing Xbox half the night with any one of 40 million other 16-year-old kids like you from Pasadena, Fiji, Gdansk or Melbourne? In time, they will tell us, but we must prepare our minds to listen. Given Scotland's experience and its excellence as a progenitor of new conceptions of the human, I think of it, Scotland, as the Jimmy Stewart character in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. We may be pressed by the turbulence and the violence of the times to take up the gun and protect what we had, but we will not bring weapons. We will bring the new books of civil society. We will write them ourselves and we will make as well as print the legend of our own creative participation in the globe of the future. Yes, there are challenges and nightmares galore to overcome. There are buses to run on time and hospitals to equip and schools to turn into beautiful cathedrals of the new aspiration. That's a task. That's a series of tasks. And as I said, our perplexity is our situation and our moment. It is for Scotland, your Scotland, to write the Magna Carta of the Internet to author its Bill of Rights, to play its part in securing decency and opposing chaos and advancing liberty and finessing our passage from a world of closed borders. To those alarmed by the speed of change, take heart. A true national character feasts on change and adapts to it and stakes its claim upon it. Imagine how the Scotland of the 1950s would have appeared to Robert Burns the Firth of Clyde he looked down at as he drove the plough at Mauchlin, now a byway for nuclear submarines. Imagine how the Dumfries of 1840 would have seemed to him, even, while his own children were still alive and a steam train puffed over the fields where he once had driven his donkey, donkey for the excise. Burns arrived here in Edinburgh on the 28th of November, 1786, with a passion for intellectual inquiry and, well, a passion for passion. And within the blink of an eye, in cosmic time, the lawn market he bided in would be a hub of international information and augmentation arriving by the second. Yet still, his Scotland would persist. And so would his voice, so melodious, finding the human pulse at the centre of change. Blood and soil nationalism wasn't repugnant to him, but it wasn't the hallmark of his empathy either. He felt for all creatures, and in his modern universe of human imagining, there was a place for everything. It's in the nature of Scotland, at its very best, to give everything its due. A glass of water on a table, so beautifully caught in the light of an afternoon by Francis Bunty Cadell, the Scottish colourist. The attitude of a Glasgow couple, as rendered by the great Chick Murray, a couple blown out of their Gallowgate tenement during the Blitz by a flying bomb. Ah, we're fine, said the husband, speaking from the street where they still lay in the marital bed. It's the first time we've been out together in years. <laughs> Everywhere, the Scottish attitude towards particularity. Miss Jean Brodie and her famous girls, who still march in a perfect line of viability down the road from Marcia Blaine's high school. We see them still 
as we see many products of the continuing Scottish imagination, particular specimens of the human case, and they are bathed in the light of a reality being fully given its due. They have made them more instantly available every day and every second to the world by digital means. Burns knew his culture, and it brought the best of itself forward as it marched steadily ahead, capturing life in the ebb and flow. A rage for fairness and equality was Scotland's gift to Burns and Burns's gift to us. Hear the particular, hear the empathy, like the, lift the farm like a lid and see, farm within farm, and in the centre, me, as Norman McCaig put it. Just listen for it, to a mouse. We sleek it, cool and timorous beastie. Oh, what a panic's in thy breastie. Thou needna start away, say hasty, we bicker and brattle. I would be lathe to run and chase thee, you murder and paddle. I'm truly sorry. Man's dominion has break broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion that makes thee startle. At me, thy poor earth-born companion and fellow mortal. I doubt na whiles, but thou may thieve. What then, poor beastie? Thou maun live. A daemon icker and a thrave's a small request. I'll get a blessing with the lave and never miss it. Thy wee bit hoosie, too, in ruin. It silly was, the winds are strewn, and nothing now to big a new ain of foggage green, and bleak December's winds ensuing, be snell and keen. Thou saw the fields laid bare and waste, and weary winter coming fast, and cosy here, beneath the blast thou thought to dwell, till crash the cruel coulter passed out through thy cell. That way bit heap of leaves and stibble has cost thee many a Moany dribble. Now thou's turned out for all thy trouble. Both house are hauled to thole the winter's sleety dribble and cranrich called. But Moosey, there are no thy lane, and proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes o' mice and men gang after glee. And Leah's not but grief and pain for promised joy. The present, still thou art blessed compared with me. The present only toucheth thee, but oh, ha, backward cast my e, and prospects dear, drear, and forward, though I canna see, I guess and fear. Not all the waters in the rough, rude sea. Not all the waters in the rough rude sea of the world wide web even will ever wash the sympathy out of that poem. It is an essence, and Scotland's essence, despite all the difficulties, all the trials, all the poverties, all the hurdles, all the contradictions, can contribute largely to the next era of life on earth, is Scotland's tasks. But only if the deepest reserves of our, of our imagination can guide the mouse. I want you to know, wrote a Russian reader to me recently, that the poems of Robert Burns and the philosophy of Scotland, which I found on the internet, has helped me, well, it's helped me to live my life. My search engine now leads me to other great minds and I feel I have, well, I feel I have come home. Scotland is a place in which to live and breathe and vote and argue. But it is also a place in the mind a movable feast, and self-improvement will be our greatest export. In the end, in my end, is my beginning, said Mary Queen of Scots at the close of our own torrid life. The line makes an impression in Four Quartets, the late poem by that prince among modernists, T.S. Eliot. The lilt and flow of our own modernism is to be found there among the ashes of the old binaries. Neither nationalism nor unionism, 
but the best of both worlds in a conjuring of the new is already happening. History is now, and Scotland. The rhythm will be felt in the way we work for a future we could hardly believe, in a world we could scarcely know, where nations are imagined communities and its legislators are imagineers at the centre of world events. And our people, Scottish to the core, can bring their native intelligence and bravery to the constant fixing of a world that needs it. From the river to the sea, from the advocates close to the streets of Dundee, from the ridge of the Coolins to the graveyards of Ettrick, from Castle Milk to Rothsay Bay, from Selkirk to the salt market, from the teenagers in the bus stop at Inverkeething to the hedge fund manager in the converted lighthouse, from the family in Melbourne, Australia who took the £10 visa to the maiden aunt in Canada who remembers the electric bray, from the ex-bus ex conductor in Elgin to the Scottish builder in Camden Town, the Lord High Commissioner to the Russian reader to the wee woman with the wane, singing to her of a Scotland that will one day become her. History is now and Scotland. There is work to do and a people to be and we were never more ourselves than in letting ourselves go forward. We shall not cease from exploration, writes T.S. Eliot, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time, through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of the earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of a hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree. Thank you. Andrew O'Hagan, I asked you to demonstrate to us that this festival can be a place for thinking things through. Boy, have you succeeded in doing that. For your lucidity, for your wit, and above all, for your courage, I think on behalf of everybody here, I want to salute you for what I think is a key moment for the book festival. Thank you so much, Andrew O'Hagan. Podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.